You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The State Health Department notes that over the last seven days, there have been 37 deaths across the state as a result of the surge of the highly contagious Delta variant. It's a somber fact, but one that's important to underscore as policymakers hand down vaccine and testing mandates and passport-only access to some business establishments. We talked to acting state epidemiologist Dr. Sarah Kemble about the new Mu variant, which is a variant of interest but not of one of concern like the Delta strain. She tells us the Mu strain was first detected in the islands back in June. The Delta surge comes at a time when we worry about our children just back in the classroom, many of whom aren't eligible to be vaccinated. There have also been outbreaks and clusters at food establishments, and that has us questioning the risk of eating out. The latest positive COVID case counts over the last two days appears to be trending down. It's 380 today. But Dr. Kemble warns our hospitals are still having a hard time. While case counts look like maybe leveling off a little bit now, we have to remember that hospitalizations and deaths lag behind and that our hospitals are still going to have yet to see the, the worst of it. Mitigation is really going to be crucial. We're still butting our heads up against that upper limit for the hospitals because cases that have already happened are now getting sick enough to come to the hospital, and they're going to continue to see those people coming in. And once they get there, if you're sick enough to go to the hospital, many people stay for a long time. You know, and we were hearing about the situation with the oxygen tanks and the ECMO machines. Yeah, the hospitals are absolutely hurting, and I, and I think that even if we stopped all new cases, if we could magically stop all new cases today, they still are going to see uh, more to come from what, what's already taken place. So we have to get as close to zero as we possibly can to get our hospitals through the crisis. We are hearing about different variants. Yeah, I've been getting a lot of questions about the Mu variant. The Delta variant remains well over 95% of our cases in the state. We're almost exclusively seeing Delta right now. We've seen a few Mu cases, but this is not a variant that we're seeing a pattern where it's taking over. So while there's concerning aspects to Mu, Delta is seems to be the most successful in the niche it's in right now. We did have the problem with contact tracing, you know, early on. I mean, how are we set up at this point now that we're seeing this surge? We're really focusing on trying to reach all of the people who've tested positive, so trying to reach all the cases and then to investigate selected cases that are going to have the highest impact. So that's going to be cases in schools, for instance, in long-term care facilities, cases that were hospitalized or died. And when we detect clusters, then we're going to do more thorough cluster investigation, and with that comes attendant contact tracing. But with the volume of cases we're seeing right now, we're not going to reach every contact of a case. We're going to try to reach the case, make sure they have the right information about how to isolate and to notify their contacts and tell them how to quarantine. Um, and that information is available on our website and through one-pagers and through our partners. So we're getting that information out through every avenue we can. But we really need people to take some personal responsibility when they get that positive test result, uh, make sure they isolate and tell their close contacts to quarantine. Anything you can uh, share with us about trends in the schools? I think, you know, this has been a really challenging time for schools because we're having so many cases in the community, and cases in the community means having cases that impact the school. So they are finding out about cases among students, among staff. Um, The key is making sure that notifications go out so that people who could have been close contacts know to stay out for their quarantine period. And then when we identify something that's out of line with what we expect. So we're seeing multiple cases in a single classroom, for example. Um, That's when we really encourage them to work closely with the Department of Health and we do a more extensive cluster investigation. So our resources are focused on addressing those clusters, identifying where potential transmission could be occurring and make sure that we address that so it doesn't happen further. So one really important point that I want to make about clusters is we investigate what we what we learn about, right? And the ways that we learn about cases are through labs being submitted to us, um, being able to reach that person and find out what they do by asking them on the phone, or sometimes by businesses calling us to let them know that they know they have a case. Um, So in those situations where we become aware, we're going to work with the person, we're going to work with the business to figure out if there's multiple cases in that setting and provide technical assistance. But we're not actually going to learn about every cluster that's out there. 
So one of the things I, I want to remind people is just because one place has a cluster doesn't mean that other restaurants are safer. Um, and I think that's an important point to head off because there can be this false sense of security that because you heard one place has a cluster, if you don't go there for lunch today, you're fine. That's actually not the case. And so it's really important that we identify the actual risk factors, the behaviors that led to transmission rather than name this location or name that location, um, which doesn't really get at the overall cause for why disease transmission is happening. The other point I'll make is a lot of the restaurants uh, that have a cluster occur to them um, and we work with them, they're probably her safest restaurant to visit uh, while they're under investigation because they're taking all the measures they can to keep um, the public safe, whereas those that aren't coming to light because people didn't go to test or they didn't want to tell us uh, may be riskier establishments. Honolulu is about to launch the Safe Access Program. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that and people's safety? I think what policymakers are, are looking at right now, the challenge they're facing is how do we make sure that people who are, who are visiting establishments have reduced the risk of transmitting Vaccine is the number one way we know to do that. Um, it's really an issue of human behavior. If you just tell people they should be vaccinated before they go to restaurants, how do you know that people actually took that step and how do you prove it? Um, and I think that's the, the real challenge in implementing a policy like that. So when something like safe access, they're trying to find a way to do that and hope that that can reduce transmission because we do know if you're fully vaccinated, you're going to be less likely to transmit to others and be infected. On the contact tracing aspect, you know, we, we know we were hearing calls for people to be nicer when the contact tracers call, you know, asking for COCUA uh, because, you know, it's, you know, we're in this very difficult situation and, you know, we're trying to protect people. But if folks aren't truthful or don't respond, I mean, it really limits your effectiveness. Right. And I think that is where Policymakers get driven to more sweeping measures, whether it's um, passports or mandates or, um, or just blanket mitigation measures. If we can't account for the individual choices people make, then you know, the, the next step is to see, well, what will um, overall reduce the behaviors that are leading to transmission? That was acting state epidemiologist Dr. Sarah Kemble, who talked to us yesterday afternoon. The Delta variant has pushed us to the brink of a worst-case scenario for our healthcare facilities. And just short of another shutdown order, Honolulu's mayor is preparing to launch his compromise of sorts. The Safe Access Program, which rolls out on Oahu next Monday, affects tens of thousands of businesses. Amy uh, Asselbai is the head of the city's Office of Economic Revitalization. She walks us through what you need to know about the Safe Access Program. Safe Access Oahu is among a couple of the mayor's uh, recent orders to help defeat COVID and have a more COVID-safe economy. So when it starts September 13th, we have 60 days kind of for this pilot to see how it works, if it helps increase vaccination, if it helps lower the spread of COVID-19. That is certainly the intention. So Safe Access Oahu requires full vaccination for employees at any kind of entertainment, recreational setting, restaurant, bars, fitness establishment, and group physical activities. And workers and customers who aren't fully vaccinated would have to provide proof of a negative COVID test um, with an FDA-approved test. And that includes those tests that are available at local pharmacies that have the emergency use authorization. So um, customers at all the established establishments would also have to provide that proof of full vaccination or that negative COVID-19 test. And those are the basics of the program. And what are some of the stumbling blocks that businesses worry that they'll encounter going forward? Well, just how do you collect or review a customer's COVID-19 vaccination or negative COVID test? And it's 
we think simply just, you know, checking at the door or if you're making reservations at a restaurant, it's something you could upload to your reservation or attest to when you make your reservation so that you could, you know, show the card or the proof of the negative test when you arrive for your reservation at a restaurant. We also have a long list of FAQs on the website, oneoahu.org, safe access Oahu. There's so many questions answered there. And the great news is since we've announced the city's call center, 768 City has received a lot of questions. And so every kind of question that we're receiving, whether it's a phone call or through our webinars, we're posting into the FAQs because we kind of know that's what we're getting asked about. That's what we need to share information on in terms of those easily accessible web pages or, as I mentioned, that seven-day-a-week call center is available if people have questions they want to ask person to person. And signage is a big deal <laughs> throughout this pandemic. We've just seen, you know, the, the little markers on the floor for spacing and uh, those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Well, what can you tell us about signage? Signage is something that we're requiring businesses to post, those that are impacted by Safe Access Oahu. And the signage is available also on the webpage. It's a downloadable PDF. Um, when businesses submit their self-attestation um, in terms of themselves and their employees' vaccination status, you can also request that um, that signage be sent to you in that form. So it's easily downloadable, or um, you can request that the city send you a copy if you don't have a printer easily available. And there are other sign companies around town, I know, that are providing something similar. Absolutely. And there's also a lot of support, whether it be an HR department or a legal department of some of the larger restaurants or fitness facilities that are impacted, they're helping their teams to put together all the implementation material for this program. But yesterday, for example, Hawaii Employers Council and the Chamber of Commerce uh, joined with us on um, a webinar to talk about Safe Access Oahu. They have information that's available um, on their web pages. Of course, they both have I think the chamber has at least 2,000 members. Hawaii Employers Council has about 800. So they're providing some templates and other information for their member businesses, as well as information that is free and available to smaller businesses. So I think, you know, in terms of the city's focus, we think those small mom and pops are the ones that are really going to need our guidance. Maybe the businesses that are owned by people where the ownership English is not their first language. We really want to provide a little bit more resources for them so they can understand how to comply. We think businesses want to comply. We know they want to keep their employees healthy, you know, able to come into work and safe. And the same for your customers. No one wants, you know, to have their establishment be the place where there's COVID outbreak. No one wants to spread COVID. No one wants to get COVID. And this is just another measure that we think will help decrease the spread and hopefully also help increase vaccination rates. So we shall see how that goes over the course of the 60 days that this program will be implemented. And then you also had legal representation, right? Right. And so we don't feel comfortable that it's appropriate to provide legal counsel in terms of how do I, as an individual business person, comply with this. There's various complexities associated with every type of business, and it's best to speak to your own legal counsel to get advice when you have questions. Our team at the city can provide, you know, basic information about general compliance with the order. But if you have very specific questions about something unique that occurs in your business place, you should definitely consult legal counsel to make sure you're doing the right thing. So the webinar that you uh, folks had yesterday, that it's available mm-hmm. for um, businesses if they want to take a look at it? Yeah, it was recorded, and about half of it was presentation. It is on the One Oahu um, Facebook page, so you can view it you know, in full or in part at any point in time. You can also check our frequently asked questions, as I mentioned, because whatever was asked in that webinar was also what we added to our frequently asked questions page.
And you have another webinar happening today. That's right. Today at 1 o'clock, we'll be presenting with the Hawaii Public Health Institute and other public health experts to talk about why this new order is needed in terms of its impact on public health. And secondly, um, we'll be describing um, the specifics of the order and how to comply with it. Are you talking at all to the other counties? You know, because um, Maui County just announced that they're going to move to this. I'm not sure what the plan is for uh, Big Island or Kauai. But, you know, just so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. (laughs) Yeah. Everything that we have available, we always make available to the other counties. One of the other issues we had talked about was the rental and utility relief program. And we meet weekly with the state and all the counties um, on that program. We talk about rent relief. We talk about mediation. We talk about the potential for mortgage relief. And so there's a lot of coordination and collaboration. But I think on The emergency orders, that really happens at the mayor-to-mayor and um, governor level. So, yes, Mayor Victorino, it sounds, is implementing an order similar, but not exactly the same as Safe Access Oahu. And um, everything that we have, we'd love to share, even with the counties that haven't yet implemented something similar, but maybe thinking about it. And is it more problematic If there isn't a bright line, that it just becomes more gray and more difficult to enforce? Well, I think you may have heard that some restaurants, um, Pacific Shipyard, certainly the city and county of Honolulu, um, and other businesses implemented their own vaccination mandate. So it is possible um, to go ahead and adopt these policies. For example, hair and nail salons have asked us, does Safe Access Oahu apply to my business? And the answer is no, presently. And yet some of those businesses want to use, you know, the basics of this order to create a more COVID-safe workplace for their staff and customers. So the guidance that's available um, for the businesses impacted is available to all. Um, Of course, you know, you can make it uh, less strict or more strict if you aren't covered by the order. That's certainly up to you as a business person in terms of how you think um, you'd like to go about protecting your staff or customers. But um, we definitely, you know, this order was developed with public health officials and very, you know, fact, evidence, science-based information. And, of course, we intend to review it in that same manner, look at the evidence in terms of whether it's working or not. And one of the pieces of evidence that drove the mayor to consider this was also the UHERO report. And they surveyed over 900 local businesses. And that survey showed that more than 80% of those businesses have uh, most of their employees are fully vaccinated. And the report also said that 65% said that they already do or likely will require employees to be vaccinated. So we think that report represents above and beyond those businesses that are impacted by Safe Access Oahu. And it gave the mayor some feedback that, you know, this is something that businesses have already been compliment or, you know, contemplating. Some businesses have already implemented and others maybe just needed some guidance and education um, to be able to implement it. How does the city plan to deal with businesses that may just dig in their heels and say, no, I'm just not going to comply? So this order would be complaint-based enforcement. So if you went to a bar or restaurant or a fitness facility, museum or theater, and they weren't enforcing this order, we would have to receive the information. And depending on the type of establishment, either the HPD or Liquor Commission could cite or in the case of the Liquor Commission, they could close down a business if there were repeated violations of the order. We have been hearing from uh, Amy Asselby, Director of Honolulu's Office of Economic Revitalization. She was talking about the Oahu Safe Access Program that launches Monday. A similar program is to roll out on Maui later next week.
Support for HPR comes from Monkey Pod Kitchen on Oahu in Ko'olina and Maui in Wailea and Ka'anapali. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application at monkeypodkitchen.com slash careers. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll catch up with Iolani School's data-driven process called Aina Informatics. As a recent GEAR funding recipient, we'll find out how Iolani is taking this place-based curriculum and building a community of practice with other schools. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Artists of Hawaii Now, new work from local artists exploring issues of the here and now. Open September 16th, honolulumuseum.org. Overcrowded conditions at Hawaii's jailhouses and prisons. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Kevin Dayton on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So you have a couple of stories about the Department of Public Safety, but let's start out with the one that looks like they've got shipping containers on on uh, on on the premises there. They do, and by way of a little bit of background, you know, the correction system has always had a huge problem with space, and that's only gotten worse during the pandemic. Um, Hawaii jails and prisons have traditionally been badly overcrowded and triple selling at OCCC, the Oahu Community Correctional Center. That had been going on for years before the pandemic even hit. Now, when the state uh, developed a pandemic response plan early on, it was based on some CDC recommendations that required things like social distancing of six feet or more, separating bunks, uh, quarantining inmates, and maybe the most important one was somehow keeping inmates separate from the general population for 14 days after they arrive, if possible. Now, that last item is particularly critical because, obviously, inmates come and go from jails uh, more frequently than prisons, and the extra traffic in and out provides for more opportunities for new infections to bring COVID-19 into the, into the jail. Um, as I mentioned, the CDC recommendations are really tough to follow, and especially in a crowded facility. So one of the solutions that the department came up with, Department of Public Safety, was to uh, purchase these containers. They look like shipping containers. They have four doors. They have partitions inside them. Uh, they have toilets. They have air conditioning. They have uh, light fixtures and so on. So you, the inmates would be able to live in them pretty much like a, a normal cell, except they were able to drop those outside the OCCC, which is, which is what they did. Okay, but they're just sitting there, right? They're not used yet. Well, then, then there was a problem that was discovered, and the problem was that these, these containers obviously require some degree of electrical power because you've got to run the air conditioning and the lights and so on. You can't leave them in the dark. And it was discovered that the OCCC's electrical system was unable to handle the additional load of the containers. So the two containers were dropped out there in December, but they've been unable to actually put inmates in them and, and connect them to power um, because they, they just didn't have the infrastructure. So at the moment, the state is currently uh, letting a contractor or contracting with someone who will be able to upgrade the OCCC electrical system so that... They can actually put these into into use. Each one of the containers runs about one hundred and twenty four thousand dollars, and they purchased eleven of them. Although although not all of them have been delivered yet, but these two at OCCC have been sitting there since December. Right, and the plan is to use them on the neighbor islands. Uh, you know, just to supplement, uh, you know, what they've got. Right, to give them some space to isolate uh, patients or inmates. Exactly. The plan. The plan is was and is to basically use that extra space, those extra cells, to isolate inmates who need to quarantine or inmates who need to be medically isolated, um, other kinds of things, to basically make space to give them a little bit of elbow room so that they can be take more precautions to try to prevent the disease from coming inside the facility. just hasn't worked out real well yet. Yeah, all right. Well, we'll have to uh, watch that closely. And then you've got another story, you know, w- with the situation with the overcrowding. Uh, I know that there was a motion, uh, I think, before the Supreme Court to uh, consider letting uh, some of the folks that are there uh, at our jailhouses uh, free on the streets because of it, overcrowded conditions. Exactly. And and it, it, the logic is, is sort of similar. The idea is space inside the jails and prisons, you reduce the opportunity for infections because you're giving the inmates a little bit of room to themselves so that hopefully they're not tripping over each other and infecting each other. 
Um, this is sort of the latest chapter uh, in, in a fairly long-running court saga now. Um, the state public defender uh, has filed several times now. This is the third time that he's asked the state Supreme Court to take steps to expedite the releases of what's being described as low-risk inmates, uh, inmates in particular, inmates such as petty misdemeanor offenders and uh, misdemeanor offenders, many of whom haven't been convicted yet. They're being held a pending trial or pending some sort of court action. And, and the public defender is arguing basically that we ought to reduce the population inside these facilities. Now, they've made this argument twice before. They made it uh, in the spring of 2020, and the court agreed, and the court released, um, I'm told, about 100 inmates at that time. Um, and then the, the, the public defender came back in the fall, uh, August, actually, of 2020, and said we need to do this again. And then about uh, something on the order of about 430 inmates were released, released between August and April of this year. Right. And the prosecutor uh, now is saying uh, we shouldn't have to release any more inmates. I know we've got the vaccines, but, you know, not everybody's vaccinated. And uh, that that's a real uh, a real issue that our uh, prison officials are, are having to deal with. Correct. It's an interesting, interesting problem because the prosecutor is saying that there shouldn't, there's, there's no need. The inmates have access to a vaccine, so there's no longer any need to release inmates. They can take care of themselves basically by getting vaccinated. Right. So stay tuned. But thanks, Kevin. All right. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's reality check. Uh, to read his stories online, visit syllabi.org. This week, we remember those who were lost in the 9-11 attacks 20 years ago. But we also think about those who survived, like Deb Lewis. She's a retired Army colonel, author, and instructor at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. She served our country for 34 years and has lived on Hawaii Island for the last nine. She was working at the Pentagon on the day of the attacks. The Conversations Russell Subiono spoke to her about her experience that day and where her military job took her in the years that followed. We talked to Lori Lechek earlier this week. She's the widow of David Lechek, a budget analyst for the Army who died at the Pentagon during the 9-11 attacks. I know that you were also at the Pentagon that day. What was your experience? On that day, we were doing what we normally do in our anti-terrorism office. We were monitoring things on TV. We had CNN and all the other programs that were up. And I, my main job was to refine the regulations to keep people safe in buildings. So we had our different teams. So we were sitting in there and we had the TVs on. So we knew that something happened when the first tower was hit. Yeah. When the first tower was hit, we didn't know at the time. And I think people may forget this. We didn't know it was an airplane at that time. We just knew a huge explosion happened at that, at the tower. And so we were automatically, our people, our senior leaders, one level above me, went into a meeting. And then we watched the second tower. And of course, then we knew for sure this was aircraft, this was commercial aircraft. And then we, I was standing next to an intel analyst who we were trying to figure out, okay, they have completely upended the targets and our strategies. Because when people were hijacked, you normally would cooperate so that you could live and land. Here they were making our aircraft into bombs and these planes were all fueled. And when they were in the meeting, all I can tell you is, because it wasn't that long, it was within an hour after after the first tower was hit that, that we were attacked in the mm-hmm. Pentagon. And the building just shook. We're talking the Pentagon, a huge, huge office building. Think of it as a pie. And we were the adjacent pie to where the plane went in. And it shuddered. We're talking this huge concrete building. (laughs) It just shook like something was going to fall through the ceiling. That's how it felt. And, and, And you're just like, what? So we didn't know if it was a bomb. Was it a plane? You know, what was it? And we immediately gathered up quickly and and exited because all the alarms went off. And as we exited the building, you could look off to the right and you could see this huge um, black 
smoke billowing out and people just rushing out of the building because it was the adjacent pie to ours. And immediately I saw my predecessor, my friend, Vince Cam, another engineer, he, he's all beat. He's got cuts and, and his shirts all ripped off and he's carrying some classified documents with him. He left his keys and everything in the office. Oh. Oh man. Never to return, oh by the way. Mm-hmm. And and I said, Are you okay? Are you okay? And I think he was in a bit of shock. They had also opened the door for my future boss. He was trapped, he was his boss at that time, trapped in one of the offices because of the suction from when the plane went actually in underneath them. From what I understand, if the plane had hit anywhere but the recently renovated part of the building, it would have been much worse. Absolutely. We could have lost that entire building. We were the, it hadn't been renovated since just post-World War II, where they didn't even have like the fire things in there. There were no fire doors. There were none of that until the renovation. So to our wedge, the reason we were spared a lot of it is they had a lot of that taken care of with the fire doors and things to make sure it didn't spread to our side. The fire spread for days going the other direction. Oh, After the plane hit, you just have to understand you had you had a fireball from the outside because the plane hit equipment that was outside. Mm-hmm. You had the fireball because of what was the fuel that was in that aircraft. And then you had the fires based on all the flammable materials, which the plane went in and was already on fire. Then it set fire to things in the building and especially in the ceiling. You know, after the dust had settled in New York, at the Pentagon, in that field in Pennsylvania, How long did it take for the first phase of response to be designed and implemented? It was pretty immediate. We had, we were doing the renovation, like I said. So there's whole engineer teams that really understood the building. And then we had a few local units, engineer type units that came in and helped within the first 24 hours. We were actually back. Some members of my team were back in the building and not everybody evacuated. I was telling you, the whole building is so huge not everybody left the building at that initial point in time they had no idea what was going on mm-hmm. we were we were close enough that it, it affected us and we were back in that building some members within hours after this happens how did your job change after that what was your experience your work experience in the months and the years right after the crash it did change it, it changed dramatically we went from planning mode, which is the staff, what the staff often does. You know, I'm, I'm meeting with over 200 people worldwide to help r- make put rigor and, and explain very practical ways how to keep people safe in buildings from terrorist attack. What we found out for my job is that all of that panned out. We had a more robust plan for the Pentagon because it's more than a car bomb. It was a truck, you know, we planned for a truck bomb. We didn't plan for a plane. But if you take a look at the videos, you can see how much of the impact was mitigated by what they had done even on the outside. Budget people were helping us with that. And then when we exited the building and we were getting in reports, we talked to the person who had seen the plane go in. So we had that physical evidence. We, I knew the person who was the engineer part of looking in the building and telling us how far did it go in. It went into the C-ring. We E-ring, the, the Pentagon is in a consecutive series of rings. We only renovated the outside part of the E-ring. And when we got out, then we went in operational mode. Operational mode meant 24-7. We had teams online in order to help. For us, that meant we couldn't go into the building immediately, so we went, someone luckily had a had an apartment nearby. Mm-hmm. And and when we were we were first evacuated just to the parking lot, but then we had reports of more aircraft because we thought there were over three thousand aircraft in the air at the time, and we we thought okay we need to move away from the building in case it gets attacked again. Even though some of us had been thinking, well, it could hit the White House, could hit the Capitol building. What were other prime, very visible targets? The towers, obviously, very visible targets. What else could they be after? When we went into that person's apartment, we were on the phones, we were doing things starting the 24-7 operation. And then I actually became a shift leader for that, working for an admiral. And I did that for another six months until I, I changed assignments. In the years that followed the attacks, 
I know that you spent some time in Iraq from 2006 to 2007. What was your experience like there? Let me just pause for a minute. When you compare it to what happened at 9-11, I think 9-11 well equipped me to be able to understand that kind of fog of war, that chaos of war. And going to Iraq turned out to be the place that my entire military experience from the time I entered West Point in the first class with women and all the garbage and crap and difficulties that happened there. But I learned so much and I learned to be stronger and better and how to overcome. And then you think of the Pentagon experience that here is real world catastrophes that happen on our homeland. And and you have to be able to deal with that. Going to Iraq was an honor to, to be able to actually implement and use those things that I did. And it was a terrible time. People remember in 2006 when I went there, I got there. See, again, this is like I'm working engineering, keeping people safe in buildings. Some may wonder my timing. How does that happen that I keep always being in the place where chaos reigns? But Samara Mosque had been blown up like in April. Up until then, we were thinking we were exiting. We were no longer going to be doing projects. And that's what I was told. And they didn't give me any more people the whole year I was there. They rotated some people in and out, but they never gave me more people. It was $2.1 billion we were dealing with, with the things that were had been done and that, and doing it in harsh weather. And the, and the final thing you may not have known and really didn't happen to a lot of organizations, my team was all volunteers coming oh. from all over the world. I had National Guard, I had different services, I had Air Force, I had Marines, I had Navy. You know, we had the whole gamut of people working on my team, not big. I had 36 military. Think about the numbers that we're talking about in construction. I had 125 Department of Defense civilians from also all over the world. I had 100 and 125 Iraqis who worked directly for me. I had guards from um, Nepal, Gurkha guards. I had these organizations that do security, Aegis and Aranus. So I had probably 850 on my team. I didn't have an army of people to protect me to go visit these project sites. And after Samara Mosque blew, all of Al Ambar province, which was my area, as well as Baghdad, if you could think of red dots, it was attacks were going on everywhere. Yeah. And so that experience taught me that you can do amazing things if you work well with your people and you can handle that stress. And it was stressful. But it was incredibly fulfilling because of the people we met, including the Iraqi people. They are caring and helpful and able to do so much. That's incredible. I love the idea of a lot of different people and a lot of different pe people from a lot of different cultures coming together and working together. All of your experience throughout your time in the Army, 9-11 in the Middle East, from what I can tell, has kind of come to fruition in a book that you've written. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book? Yes, it's not the book that I planned, which is the fun part. I planned to do that sophisticated leadership book and pass on all my leadership um, advice and, and help and insights to other people. And in the middle of that, I gave a presentation to University of Hawaii at Hilo students. I wanted to help them because under stress, you can really lose the best of yourself. And I wanted to help them understand at that time, it was anger, I was focusing on anger, but I wanted it to be a fun time together. So I created cartoons and they showed, I had had something happen to me, no matter how skilled you are in handling stress, something can always push your hot button. And usually people get negative is when they can't handle stress. Yeah. If you're going to fight, run away or shut down, those are all our only base instincts, our survival mode responses to stress. So if you do any of those three things, I can tell you from great experience, the outcomes are definitely less than optimal and usually horrible. And so I te was teaching these students imparting these lessons there. And then the, the cartoons wanted their own book. 
So the cartoons became a children's book, but it's so much more than that. It's called, Why is Pono Not Pono Today? And it's how to bring out the best when someone is stressed. But I, what I've done is taken these very complex concepts and distilled them down to what is most important at any moment. How can we help each other? And this is going to be a tough week. People have been already showing the videos of 9-11. And, and I just encourage people to keep refilling their tank. Every moment, once you feel, because this is something to be sad about, but it's also something to be hopeful and to, to take action by loving other people and helping other people and focusing on what's most important. Powerful stuff. That was retired Army Colonel Deb Lewis talking with R. Russell Subiono. For more information on her book, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Mockingbirds will be brought to the territory this month by Hui Manu. That's a headline from a 1931 edition of the Honolulu Star Bulletin, back when it was popular to purposely introduce non-native species. Ninety years later, you can still find a few northern mockingbirds in the islands. Our host, Patrick Hart, tells you what to look for, and we've got their song, thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's your Manu Minute. Mockingbirds are a recognizable part of the bird world in North and Central America, but many people in Hawaii don't know that we have them here as well. They mostly live in dry woodland habitats, on the leeward side of all of our islands, and even there generally aren't very common. Mockingbirds are not native to Hawaii. They were introduced in the 1920s as a songbird and for insect control. About the size of minas, but with a longer tail, they're gray, with dark wings that have bright white patches that can only be seen when they fly. One of the most interesting things about mockingbirds is that they can learn hundreds of different songs and often mimic the sounds of other species of birds, as well as frogs, crickets, dogs, car alarms, and squeaky gates. Why do mockingbirds do this? Most likely because females prefer males that are the most fit and have the best genes to pass down to their offspring. And the best way for males to show females how fit they are is through their song repertoire. Males that can mimic a large variety of different songs and sounds are showing that they're stronger and more experienced than those with smaller repertoires. In support of this idea, one recent study found that while male mockingbirds sang throughout the year, they produced the greatest variety of song types when they're courting females just prior to breeding. Some of our native Hawaiian bird species, such as the apapane, are also known to mimic other species but none as well as the Northern Mockingbird. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin September 20th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Annual membership contributions and program sponsorships from local organizations are critical to fueling the day-to-day -day work of HPR. But there's an additional way to build a lasting future for public radio in Hawaii. Make a gift through your will or estate plan. By including HPR as a beneficiary, you ensure future generations can access the resource that has meant so much to you. For more information, go to hawaiipublicradio.org legacy. 
New research on the origins of the Hawaiian language is stirring debate uh, over the long-held theory in Polynesian migration that the islands were settled from Samoa. A Big Island Hawaiian language professor uncovered linguistic evidence for a new theory, though. HPR reporter Kuvehi Reishi joins us with more. Hi. Aloha, Catherine. So for some, some 50 years, conventional understanding of Polynesian migration to Hawaii was that uh, originally the settlers came from Samoa by way of the Marquesas Islands and then up uh, to Hawaii some 2,000 uh, miles north. But this UH Hilo linguistics professor, William Pila Wilson, uh, says he's found evidence for that new theory that the first settlers to Hawaii originated from these small atolls near the Solomon Islands. So they're right outside, they're called Polynesian outliers, right outside that Polynesian triangle that we're all used to seeing visually. Uh, atolls' names are Taku, Nukumanu, Nukeria, and um, Luangua. I hope I got that right. <laughs> uh, but what he's done is pretty much trace the Hawaiian language through that migration pattern, and he's come up with a sort of... Um, linguistic evidence that shows that we have more in common with these outliers as well as these uh, islands right south of Hawaii, so the northern line islands. And uh, folks might be familiar with Palmyra Atoll and uh, Christmas Island or Kiritimati down um, in the northern line islands. So the idea is that uh, those mi uh, migrants came from uh, the right outside the Polynesian Triangle into these northern line islands and then up to Hawaii. And so this is new research uh, for some archaeologists. You know, it's we're not sure because archaeology has really not been done on these uh, outlier islands. So tr still trying to build that body of evidence, archaeologically speaking, but the linguistic evidence uh, is is pretty strong. Uh, I got to speak to uh, Bob Blust, a UH, Hilo, uh, UH Manoa linguistics professor and sort of the godfather of Austronesian uh, language. And he says, you know, early on uh, when this theory was first proposed by Wilson back in uh, 1985, that there, the, the evidence was, wasn't as strong. There weren't as many of these uh, similarities in terms of linguistics to, to, show, to trace that thread. Um, but another um, sort of area of doubt was that um, atolls, right? So low-lying atolls, I think, Taku, for example, the highest point is seven feet uh, above, you know, sea level. And so <laughs> how can major populations like those that migrated to Hawaii have originated in a place like that? Or were they there, were there, uh, they there for long? Those are some of the questions that um, Wilson tries to answer in his, his most recently published article in Oceanic Linguistics. Um, but his findings in, in Polynesian migration are interesting because they're a product of his sort of decades-long search for the origin of Olelo Hawaii. So he was looking for the origin of Olelo Hawaii and came across this idea that perhaps if the language lines up, migration could as well. And so he maps that out and he also was able to show that uh, the same migration pattern uh, may sh uh, show up for Tahitian language or Maori language, There's, there are these similarities that sort of traces these or groups these languages in that same migration pattern. Um, but like we said, still some, it's new and there are some doubts, uh, but here's Wilson uh, talking about some who are doubting. So he says archaeologists uh, have been a bit doubtful, but uh, more recently with this with this research, he was able to find more than 200 uh, what are called linguistic changes that are shared exclusively by these outlier island languages and us here in East Polynesia, but not Samoa, right? So that was always a really tough spot for researchers trying to trace the archaeological and linguistic record from Samoa directly to Hawaii. It just didn't, it didn't add up. Um, 
and so what we're uh, Matthew Spriggs, Emeritus Professor of Archaeology down uh, at Australian National University, is retired now over in Vanuatu. Uh, he says, you know, Wilson's research supports some of the archaeological evidence of material culture and migration patterns that were seen in the Pacific. But as I said earlier, no archaeology has been done. Mm-hmm. So he's encouraging folks to go over and see what can be uncovered. Uh, but Wilson says time is of the essence. Rising sea levels actually could force the inhabitants of these sort of low-lying atolls to flee their homeland and the language could be lost in that process. It's fascinating though these are clues right they're like (laughs) fingerprints uh, of where we came from. It it was fascinating and I think uh, we will be seeing more in terms of beyond linguistics other researchers going in to try to uh, corroborate some of what he's found. How exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We've been talking with uh, HPR's Kuvehi Hirishi. Check out her stories at hawaiipublicradio.org. Here on Hawaii Public Radio, we strive to bring you the best of both worlds. We keep you informed and entertained with national programs like Marketplace and Fresh Air. And we also keep you connected to our community with our local shows like The Body Show, Bite Marks Cafe, and Kanikapila Sunday. In fact, one third of our programming is hosted by HPR's own staff. To learn more about all of our programs, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. We're out of time today, but tomorrow we continue talking about 9-11 as we come up to the 20th year anniversary of the attack. Do you remember where you were the morning of September 11th, 2001? We take you to Kailua, where a school will remember one of the graduates who lost her life that day. Leave your 9-11 memories on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.